Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com, registered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. A special coupon code is available for listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off an audio course subscription. This audio course subscription gives access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. With more than 200 hours of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it is only $59 per year with the code KEYS. Visit go.speechtherapypd.com slash keys for more information and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Hello, welcome to Keys for SLPs, a weekly audio course and podcast from speechtherapypd.com, exploring keys for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, SLP and certified orofacial myologist experienced in rehab, outpatient, school, and private practice settings. As a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning, I'm excited to discuss information to help you excel as a professional. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals and caregivers to discuss practical therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field of speech-language pathology as we discuss a wide variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs for this episode, Keys to Building Rapport with Patients and Caregivers. Before we get started, here are a few logistics. As a reminder, for this live episode, to get live CEUs, you must log into your speechtherapypd.com account and complete the entire course content by the end of the day today. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of Keys for SLPs and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com. Wilson Nice receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. She's the owner of the website, nicespeechlady.com, and receives revenue from advertising. She is employed by Genesis Health in a SNF setting. Opinions expressed by Wilson Nice are her own and not a reflection of the company. And now here's a little bit about our guest today. Wilson Nice, M-A-C-C-C, SLP, is a medical speech pathologist in New Mexico. She has worked as an SLP in a variety of settings, including hospitals, skilled nursing, outpatient, and home health. Wilson currently works as a rehab director. Since 2018, Wilson has been publishing content on her website, nicespeechlady.com, which offers free practical resources for medical SLPs, such as handouts, home programs, and assessment tools. Wilson also blogs, writes news stories, and interviews industry leaders making their mark in the field of speech-language pathology on her YouTube channel, Nice Speech Lady. Wilson utilizes evidence from research to produce content that is practical, functional, and easy for clinicians to access. She also has a host of links for assessment information and other resources available on her site. It is a hub of resources for the busy SLP. Welcome, Wilson. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be here. I appreciate it. We are so happy to have you here to talk about keys to building rapport with patients and caregivers. You have such such a wealth of experience as referenced in your bio. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey as an SLP and what inspired you to develop nicespeechlady.com? Well, I'm very much in a grateful, thankful place in my career. So many different studies, so many different opportunities to for all of us to flex our skills in so many different ways. I feel like that if at times that I've been saturated, there's always a different setting that I can go to. And I can say that I've never had any difficulty finding employment. And I can say that I love what I do. You know, there are a lot of challenges that come along with any sort of career, but I'm very much in a place of just thankfulness. And doing Nice Speech Lady is something that I decided to do when I transitioned from becoming a full-time educator as an SLP in the home health setting to back into the field. And I wanted to have an avenue to keep contributing towards clinicians out in the field. And so this was my contribution. 
And I can say that I wanted it to be something that was complimentary. I wanted it to be something that would be accessible to everyone and not so there would be no barriers to access. Because I know when I first started out after I graduated, I didn't have very many resources and I didn't have the funds to be able to purchase anything. And I wanted to be able to have quality materials available that are practical and helpful and ready-made and able to use tomorrow. Well, I love that they're free. That is so important for newly minted SLPs who might have student loans and all of a sudden they're living on their own and have a lot of expenses and now want to purchase resources. So the fact that they're free is wonderful. Another thing I love is, you know, sometimes we reinvent the wheel. And when we see a wheel that has already been invented in in some of your resources, and they're so clear and so concise and have the benefit of years of experience, it's just great that you share them with all of us. So thank you. Thank you for making that contribution. And we're going to have a chance to talk more about that in a little bit, but let's dive into rapport. So tell us the definition as you see it of rapport and how that has changed. So rapport, you know, in the research has been described as the relative harmony and smoothness of relations between different people. And in 2000, Spencer Oakley found that there were three components of rapport. It's not just about pleasantries. It's not just about saying hello. You know, it's not just about first impressions. It's about the experience of mutual attentiveness mutual positivity, and the coordination of communication between one another. And that paper in 2000 discusses the factors that influence people's dynamic perceptions of rapport and proposes that the three key elements of behavioral expectations, base sensitivities, and interactional wants all play a key role in rapport. And rapport has also been described as something that we manage. It is the management of harmony, disharmony among people. And in 2021, Rogers took several other definitions of other authors and combined it to create a new definition, talking about just people working together for growth and learning. And so when we're talking about that as clinicians, you know, why do we care about rapport? We care about it because it's foundational. It's the beginning place of the work that we do. And it's not just about first impressions. It's about relationship. Thank you. And tell us why it is important to purposely hone our skills in developing rapport. So rapport is something that some people, it it seems like some people can easily establish it with patients, you know, some have to, some, it doesn't come as easily, as easily depending upon personality, but whoever we are, it is important to purposefully intentionally develop our skills in rapport. And why is that? Well, it's because it's the connection that's the vehicle to achieving outcomes, It's the beginning place of going where we're going to go on our journey together. And if we don't have that connection in the beginning, then where we're going to go together down this road on recovery, there's no, there's no compass if we don't have that foundation. And so it's, when you think about rapport and when it doesn't go well, you think about how, you know, it's not possible to achieve what you want to achieve in terms of patients and caregivers being vulnerable, being able to talk about things that are a little bit more challenging or to really be able to talk about what they desire and what they want and what their goals are. And if we don't have that rapport in the beginning, then we can't really delve into the real issues that are going to be what we're going to focus on that will have the buy-in that's necessary for the patient to have the motivation and the caregivers to have the motivation to do the things that we're going to ask them to do in therapy. Excellent. So it's not only pleasantries that we're exchanging with a patient when we, let's say, a patient in an inpatient setting. You know, so we knock on the door and we greet them and they greet us. It goes beyond that because if we don't establish that positive rapport, then we're not going to be able to establish those goals that are functional and meaningful for the patient, which is what I love about your rating skills because they really get to the meaning of what is important to each individual. 
Okay. So with that in mind, what would be evidence for an SLP to know that they have established positive rapport? So if we're at a place where the patient is opening up about difficult subjects and is showing emotion and is talking about hard things, then we know that we've established rapport. When the patient is willing to listen to ideas that we bring to the table that may be different than what they have in mind in terms of what they think speech therapy is going to be about, then we know, and and they're trusting us with new information and new ideas, then we know that we've established rapport. When the patient starts making gains in therapy, we know that we've established some type of rapport because the patient has achieved improvements in areas that are necessary for us to look at. So those are some of the evidence that that we could talk about. Okay. So knowing that that patient is open, trusting, and making gains. So those are the three main things. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the keys to building rapport with patients. So in that study I mentioned in 2000, Spencer Oatley found that there were the three components of rapport, the experience of mutual attentiveness, positivity, and coordination. As well, in 2009, there was another study that found that in early interactions between clinician and patient or clinician and caregiver, that attentiveness is more heavily weighted than coordination, whereas in later interactions, coordination and attentiveness are more heavily weighted components. So when I'm talking about attentiveness, you know, we're talking about putting away the pen and putting down the device and we're looking eye to eye with the patient and we're totally present. We're completely there and we're 100% showing our attention to the interaction that's occurring. And we're not distracted by our phone. We're not distracted by anything else. We're attending to the task of communicating. And that's really important, especially in later interactions. And especially in early interactions, it's about positivity. It's about setting the stage for positive, having a good outlook on the potential that's there in therapy, not making promises that we can't deliver on, but being positive in these are areas that we can assess, these are areas that we can look at, and having a systematic way of doing your testing that's structured in a way that gives the patient and the caregiver some confidence in knowing that you have things set up in a certain way, you know, having that structure there has a positive effect. And they feel some confidence in that when we have structure in what we're doing testing-wise. But being positive about what all the options are in terms of therapy is something that can be important. Having robust, relatable questions prepared in advance is really important for rapport. And then just overall competence, you know, being prepared for the visit having the tests that are necessary, you know, reading the the case history in advance of the visit and knowing exactly what has happened to the patient. So when they start talking about an event that's happened in their history, you're nodding your head and you're identifying that you know that area of their medical history. And then performing at expert levels with useful tools, performing at a level where we feel really confident and we do that job really well. And then having a clean professional appearance, you know, all of those things are really important in establishing rapport. And then I would say to keep in mind at the time of the visit, nonverbal communication is really important. And if the conversation turns vulnerable or emotional, to let the patient lead you there if that's where it goes. In a study in 2011, Machi and Demica found that rapport would suffer if clinicians wouldn't pick up on these opportunities. If the patient would try to take the clinician into a vulnerable space, and then the clinician didn't feel comfortable doing that, it would really damage the rapport relationship. And so if the patient takes you there, takes you to a place of of vulnerability and they're talking about hard subjects and maybe they get a little sad or they get a little emotional or they get a little frustrated about a topic, 
It's about supportedly guiding that patient to where they want to go in the conversation and not avoiding the hard topics or the hard conversations. Because if the patient feels that they need to go in that direction, you know, we need to support them in talking about hard things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes with an assessment, especially on an initial visit, there's a long assessment to complete and there's inpatient setting, there's only so much time. So it's so important that we're not so worried about productivity and our agenda in that moment that we miss those opportunities to establish that rapport, which in the long run are more effective. Right, exactly. And then also self-disclosing information about ourselves when appropriate, of course. There was a study in 2018 that found that when clinicians would disclose information about themselves that showed a vulnerability, then that led the patient to also talk about things that would guide therapy and was helpful for therapy because otherwise the patient would not reveal their beliefs and their thoughts on some of the feelings that they had on some of the topics that they were dealing with in therapy if the clinician wouldn't have opened up and self-disclosed. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that is very interesting. So of course, being professional and not disclose too much, but um, just a little bit can go a long way. So in that study, it was about 12 SLPs suggested making those personal connections was important. They, and that was, that was with an adult child therapy relationship and sharing information about themselves. They were able to identify connections with the children and families and build a relationship on their common interests. So it can be lots of different topics that we decide to self-disclose. And then having empathy and understanding, having respect, having genuineness, remembering the names of all the caregivers and, you know, where they're from and just having all that information, you know, will, will help build rapport and then minding our body language, giving feedback in the moment as appropriate and really coming to the session without judgment is really going to be helpful. I think in building the rapport and, you know, fostering that safe environment. Let me ask you a question. So in SNF setting or a hospital setting, how do you go about building rapport? Let's say there's one family member who's in charge of the medical, I can't think of the correct word right now, but they're the power of attorney. Yes, that's it. Thank you. Okay. So you have one family member who's a power of attorney, but you have lots of family members coming in and out. And let's say you see that patient at 1 p.m. every day, and there there are different people. So how do you go about building rapport with multiple caregivers? Well, I found that in terms of disseminating information, it's really helpful to have one point of contact to be the disseminator to the other family members. However, building rapport with everyone is important because everyone is a communication partner to the patient. And everyone in the family has a vested interest in the patient making improvements and they matter too, even though they may not be the point of contact who's disseminating the information. So I think it's important to ask other family members what they see when at different times of day at in different situations And the perceptual rating scales that we'll talk about later where we're ranking the patient's performance, there's a caregiver version to that as well, where the caregiver can give their point of view on how they think the patient is performing. And this is something that can be done at evaluation and then at any point along the way to see how the patient is improving. But giving out this test to multiple family members and then comparing the different responses in the different family members. And Georgia, I noticed that you found that the patient has difficulty following directions, but Betty feels like he's an eight out of 10 for you, but Betty feels like he's doing better. He's he's a three out of 10. So let's talk about that. And I think validating each person's perspective will build rapport. Mm-hmm. And asking them why they are observing what they're observing is really important. And then asking, I just think what's really important, I think one of the most important questions to ask a patient or ask any caregiver when you're building rapport, the most important question is, what do you want? What is it that you want? 
So what is it you want to achieve? Because I can sit here and think that I know what's best for the patient, but the patient knows what the patient wants and the caregivers know what they desire for the patient. And all of those things are valid. And that's the vehicle that will get us to the place where the patient will feel like they're making improvements. So asking those kinds of questions to caregivers is going to be really vital. So what steps do you take to build rapport with the caregivers? So everything that I've mentioned up to this point that you're going to do with the patient, you're also going to do with the caregivers in terms of body language, in terms of asking, what do you want? In terms of being mindful to not be distracted by electronics or anything that's going to not have you be fully present in the moment and show the caregiver and show the patient that you are 100% here focusing just on this task. If it means putting a sign on the door saying testing will be done in 30 minutes, please don't disturb unless an emergency, you know, those type of things are really helpful. And I actually have some of those signs on my website. (laughs) That is the best idea. And that is something that I've never done. I mean, that is why nicespeechlady.com is a great website. Because it's so true. I mean, we're in an inpatient setting, we'll be trying to do an assessment and everyone is well-meaning, right? But when you're in a hospital or a SNF setting, there are lots of people coming in and out of the room. And especially if you're trying to do like a memory task, you know, that can be very distracting to the patient. So a little sign can go a long way. Excellent idea. And I love that you have that actually available for someone to just print out because it just saves people that extra step of making that sign. So, and I have different versions. There's different ones you can choose from. So check that out. So I think that checking in with caregivers is going to be really important. That would be a different thing that's taking time to step aside with the caregiver one-on-one when when it's possible and check in with them and say and ask, you know, how how are you doing? Caregiver burnout is something that happens all too frequently. And we can make recommendations to support groups and we can provide resources for to caregivers. And a lot of times caregivers really need a moment to, you know, have someone understand the gravity of what they're facing every day. And so checking in and just ask how they're coping will be good. Once rapport is established, then you're just maintaining the rapport. That's a good thing to do is to check in on a regular basis and let the caregiver know when you need to talk or when you need something, when you have a question, I want you to know I'm available. Mm -hmm. And then going above and beyond our roles as SLPs is really important. Seeing the patient, not just as a speech patient, but seeing the patient as a whole person. If the patient has a need that goes outside of our scope of practice, like they let's say it's a patient that doesn't have any family members and they need underwear. You know, we're certainly capable enough to go to social services and pass along the message that the patient needs underwear. That's something that we can do. And then that's something that's going to be helpful to the patient. And the patient is going to remember that and value that we took the time to take care of the physical need that the patient had. So seeing the patient as a, as a whole person and not just staying in our speech cubicle, I think is, is really important. And rapport is something that's established at the start. And then it's something, you know, like I said, that we maintain and it's rapport is interactive. Rapport isn't just something that we're responsible for. It's something that our communication partners contribute to also. I love that perspective because it takes two to have a relationship, even in a professional setting, we need to have two people communicating. We can't just be, it can't just be the speech therapist establishing the rapport. It has to be both ways. Yes. And negotiating, negotiating what is going to be helpful for you. What do I need to do to be helpful for you? And if it means coming in the morning, it means coming more in the afternoon, do you need me to provide information to you in writing? Do you need me to provide information to you only auditorily? Asking and having just a curiosity, having a curiosity of desiring to meet the needs of the caregiver and of the patient is going to be really important. 
Well, and all those things that you just mentioned are also going to help them reach their goals. Because if you're coming at nine in the morning and they're exhausted and they're not really awake yet, and because of their biological clock or whatever medical needs they have, they're going to be much more productive at one, you know, establishing that is so important, asking those questions. So excellent. Well, let's talk about your assessment tools because these are great. You have a few different ones. I don't know if you know off the top of your head, but how many, approximately how many different forms and handouts do you have on your website? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) it's kind of a random question, but I, you know, I've had the opportunity to go on it. It really is such a wealth of information because you have some links that link to other things too. Right. Right. So nice speech lady, original materials, things that I created myself and are original to me. I do a new blog post every week. So there's three to four resources every month. And I've been doing this for three and a half years. So, and then I had about 50 resources at launch. So doing the math there, I'd say there's at least 125 or so resources But a lot of the resources have different versions. So I'm counting every different version. So the patient version, the caregiver version. And then I like to take a basic idea and then see how I can change the angle of it and and how different perspectives can be utilized in different ways from different players. So Mm -hmm. there's, there's different versions of a lot of different things on the website. And of course, you have the Spanish language version of several, not everything, but a lot, a lot of the forms and a lot of handouts and resources. Are you bilingual or do you have someone translate those for you? No, I have a wonderful best friend. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Who who speaks Spanish as her first language. And so I just, I'm really blessed that she's helped me out and translated a lot of the materials. I've picked ones that I thought would be the most helpful. And that's been something that's been a beautiful thing to have that available. And the ranking severity measure, the perceptual scale we're we're mentioning is in Spanish as well as English. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Okay. So tell us again what you call the perceptual rating scale. So it's an, it's an assessment tool that is ranking all the different areas that we assess. So when we walk into a patient's room and we announce that we're a speech therapist and we get the proverbial, well, I don't need a speech therapist. I talk just fine, (laughs) Um, you know, and then we go into our spiel of all that we do and then they consent to the testing. This is something that I like to pull out early on because it's it's an educational tool of what we do, but also it's very structured to create rapport. You know, it goes from articulation to receptive language, to expressive language, to cognition, to the oral phase of swallowing, to the laryngeal, to the esophageal, to stuttering, to voice, to the need for AAC and pragmatics. So in all of these subset areas, there are statements that are made and then the patient ranks their severity of difficulty, zero being no difficulty, 10 being the most difficulty that they could have, just like the pain scale. So if they don't have any difficulty, they just write zeros here. So these are all difficulty statements. The patient has memory difficulties. The patient has difficulty saying single words. The patient has difficulty following directions. And so they just go through here. And this is just a great way to get a global picture of, I mean, this lets us know what kind of tests we need to administer. This lets us know where is the problem area that the patient has identified that they want to work on. And it also lets the patient know these are things that we can work on together and we can delve into these areas. So, and then at the bottom of the, after they rank all of these different areas, then they rank the most concerning area to address first. And then the length of time that they've had this difficulty. And then what was their, before they had this difficulty, what was their level? So basically what was their prior level of function before they had a change? So they're able, so we have documentation of a prior level of function. We know how long they've had this difficulty. And we have a measure that 
gives us a number. So we know that they're ranking their difficulty following what others are saying, you know, global receptive language. They're ranking themselves out of five. And so this also is something that we can use as a benchmark. You're saying that you feel like your difficulty is a five. What do you want to achieve as your goal? You want to get to a two in the next month. And then there's the patient's version and then there's the caregiver version. And these mirror one another. They're the same statements just from a caregiver statement. So you can put these side by side. The patient has ranked themselves here. The caregiver has ranked the patient at this level and it's validating. This is just a very validating measure. When I administer these, the patient likes to be able to be heard and the caregivers like to be able to be heard. It's just a good chance for people to say what they care about and what their area of involvement is. And so with patients, as long as they are able to read and physically able to fill out the form, do they fill it out themselves or do you read it to them and ask for their rating? Well, they don't have to be able to read to fill out the form. I can read it to them and we can work through it together. It just really depends on what their preference is. And so really I'm asking, that's what the question, you know, I have this, this measure and it also depends on what level of involvement the patient has receptively or expressively. If it's not something that the patient is able to participate in, then I just go with the caregiver version. Or if the patient has a yes, no response, but then I can administer the caregiver version and we can talk about it. It's something that we do verbally. And then I look over at the patient, do you agree yes or no? And then I can basically get a a patient version out of it with a binary response to what the caregiver responded in their version. So there's just different ways to use it. But some people like to just take it and read it and fill it out on their own and then ask questions if they don't understand one of the statements. It just depends on what the preference is of the individual. Okay. So you really leave it up to the situation and the preference of the individual. You don't necessarily find it more helpful to read it to them and discuss each one versus having them fill it out themselves. It it just depends upon the individual. I found that it does, it is helpful to discuss it. However, I don't push that on people because sometimes, because again, we're, we're building rapport here. So if I let them lead the direction they want to go, a lot of times there are questions that start arising and then we end up just reading it together and doing it together. And that's really helpful. But I kind of like to let the person lead in the direction they want to go because that helps with the rapport because it's about validating what their desires are and what they want. And every person learns and communicates differently. And so it's about validating their perspective and, and, you know, their desire. But I have found that I've learned a lot about some of these statements. Like, for example, in the expressive language section, the statement, the patient has difficulty saying single words. I can have someone see that statement and rank themselves at a five even though I'm hearing them and I can see that they don't have any expressive difficulties, but what they're talking about is their breath support Mm. or they're talking about their voice and we haven't gotten to the voice section yet. So it does help sometimes to explain the different sections. Okay. This section is about, you know, finding your words and, you know, using your words to communicate what you want and what you need. But sometimes letting the patient interpret the statement how they want is really revealing to what the patient cares about as well. Exactly. So this can be used for rapport building, goal setting, insight into what is important to the patient. And then you can revisit it. Of course, if you're only seeing a patient for a couple of days, you're probably not going to revisit it. But now mainly you have used this in the SNF setting. This was created when I was working in home health. I used okay. a lot in home health. And the home health setting that I was working in, every 30 days we had to do a reassessment. And so this was something that was really, I mean, the patients after the first 30 days, they expected this. 
And even with some of the patients that I worked with before the 30 days would come up, Hey, you know, I'm, I, you know how I used to be a seven, you know, I'm feeling like I'm a five today. Oh, that's great. It becomes, it becomes part of the conversation, you know, not even waiting till the 30 day mark that it, it becomes a language of its own. That's excellent. That's excellent. And same with the caregiver. Do you go back um, yes. at the 30 day mark as long as they're yes. available? It's about what, whatever was done at the initial assessment is what's going to be done at discharge or at reassessment. So, and what we want to do is we want to administer it in the same manner that it was done the first time. So if the patient read it on their own and did it independently, then we probably want to try to simulate that again. If we filled it out together and there was a lot of interaction going on in filling out the form, then we would want to simulate that again. We would want the same family member to fill out the caregiver version form. We wouldn't want a, a different sister to fill out the caregiver version form because it's a different perspective. It's a different, it's a whole different sister. So we would want the same individual each time. And obviously the patient would be, you know, the same individual. Excellent. Excellent. And understanding the prior level of function is so important. Do you have a whole section on the prior level of function or? Well, it's just at the bottom of the third page, they're going to, like I said, they're going to rank their most concerning area. And then of their most concerning area, they're going to rank their prior level of function. So this is really in out of the seven areas that you ranked that you had a number above a, a zero, what are the three areas that are most concerning? And then we have a discussion about prior level of function. And there's not a lot of detail in this measure, but that's a really good idea. Maybe I could create a resource to talk about prior level of function. <laughs> well, I'll be looking for it. <laughs> okay. So I know, you know, we talked in your bio that you have vast experience, but what was there a specific catalyst that prompted you to develop this perceptual rating scale? Well, we all know of some of the rating scales that that currently exist. There's the EAT-10, which is used a lot as a swallowing measure that gives us information about the patient's perspective about how they're doing with their swallowing. And I've given that measure quite a lot. However, there are are parts to swallowing that I want to know more about that aren't covered on the EAT-10. And so I decided, well, and a zero to four isn't very sensitive. No, it's not. So let's go all the way to 10 and mm-hmm. let's, let's, let's have more sensitivity. So the swallowing section talks about drooling the patient, the patient drools zero to 10 or I drool zero to 10 talking about pain. I have pain when swallowing or fear, you know, I fear swallowing wrong. And I just wanted to have a swallow, you know, I wanted to cover and you know, and there's a page that covers swallowing is most of one page. So there's the oral, there's the laryngeal and there's esophageal. And so I wanted to phrase things in the way that made sense to me. And so I decided to just create a measure that would be more sensitive than the E10 and then cover areas that the E10 didn't cover. And then also ask the questions that are important, like you've been told that you have a diagnosis of aspiration. You know, there are some yes, no questions on okay. this, on this measure, because that's, that's just a yes or a no. That's not a zero to 10. You have a history of pneumonia or other respiratory conditions. Yes or no. And so it's and, almost, and again, you've already read through the medical history, you know, the answer you're really wanting to see what the patient's answer is or exactly. what their perception is. And having this in the middle of all of these questions about swallowing allows sometimes the patient to have that connection between, oh, so there's a connection between my swallowing and the fact that I had pneumonia. Mm -hmm. Oh, no one actually asked me about that ever. I didn't ever think that there, that might be a possibility. And so that's one of the reasons why I decided to create the the measure. And I I also just wanted a measure that kind of covered everything. I wanted, I wanted something where, and then I also wanted a measure that allowed caregivers to give their perspective and it be something that's measurable. I wanted something that if the patient isn't able to give their perspective, 
you know, I want to know what the patient, what the caregiver, what the, the husband, the wife, the brother, I want to know what they think. And sometimes we're not always able to do, give certain tests, but most of the time, if there's a caregiver present, we can administer that type of measure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's so good to have, instead of doing separate perceptual assessment for swallowing and then for speech language and cognition, it's really nice to have it all together in one. So excellent. excellent. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, just a reminder, let me just check on our time. Okay. We have a few more questions for Wilson, but a reminder to everyone who's listening on the live podcast that if you have questions, just write it in the chat box and I'll be happy to ask them. Okay. So let's see. All right. So being HIPAA compliant, meaning, you know, without revealing any personal information about a patient, can you describe a patient situation where building rapport was really key to the success of therapy? Yes. Yes, I can. And I had a patient that I saw in the home health setting who had a neurological diagnosis as a result of trauma. And I was brought in to evaluate the patient's swallow, but I used actual, actually the, the ranking scales to get a picture of everything that we can do in speech therapy, not just the referring area. And when I got to the section about, you know, I have a need to communicate with augmentative communication, or I cannot meet my needs in the traditional oral manner of communication. That's how I worded it on the test. You know, that was a, that was a 10. And this patient was nonverbal, but that's not why I was referred in. And um, by the end of all of our time together, three months later, he was completely independent using a Toby Dynavox, the keyboard of a Toby Dynavox, being able to say anything he wanted to say. And it just so rewarding. That's a great story. Oh, so rewarding for him. And And so rewarding as a therapist to know that you were really able to make that difference. Yeah. And what I would say is that because rapport was established early on and I, and I asked questions that they weren't expecting me to ask. And I asked, and I was present, you know, I, I gave eye contact and I listened to what they said and I put all of my devices away and I was just totally present they knew that when I came to see them, I was totally 100% there for them in the moment. And that they were my priority, this, this caregiver and this patient. And as a result, when I needed to schedule on harder weeks, you know, holiday weeks and those sorts of things, they would work with me. I could get, I had no problem scheduling at difficult times because they wanted to not miss a visit. And I asked them to do things that were a little bit challenging and they were willing to do it because we had that rapport. And I would just say that it was just really, really rewarding. And the family was really, they actually invited me to a cultural event specific to their culture. That was such an honor to be invited to this event. And I saw the patient using his device all throughout this event and being completely independent with communication. Wow. How long did it take you to get the device after that initial? Well, um, it took three months for the whole process because the report writing and then figuring out which device and, you know, trialing different devices and all of that. And I wanted to make sure that we chose a device that was going to grow with him because of the nature of the condition. We knew that there would be other needs in the future. So it took a little bit longer than typical because of wanting to be cautious and careful and choosing the, the indicated technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what I really like about that perceptual rating skill, because we've had, we've all gone into situations and people say, oh, my speech is fine. No, I don't, I don't need <laughs> or, oh, you're just here for swallowing. Oh, okay. Well, but the way that you have everything listed in all the different areas, it also serves to kind of advocate for our services. And had you not had, of course you would have realized he was nonverbal, but it just opened the door at that initial evaluation for an AAC device. Um, yes. And were they, they probably weren't, were they aware that such devices existed? At that? 
Yeah. They were not, they were not. And they had had other SLPs in the home and I'm not sure what the story is, but at that moment, it really didn't matter. What mattered was we were moving forward and we had a journey that we were going to go on together. And he was brave enough to say in his way, you know, let's do it. And just the bravery of being willing to go along with someone, not knowing what the destination is going to be, you know, is just, was just so astonishing. Which goes back to that trust point. Yes. When you were able to establish that trust right away. All right. Well, again, if we have any questions from our live audience, I'll be happy to take them. Just write them in the chat. I'm just going to check this here. Okay. All right. So here's a question. Okay. So Wilson, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice when you were just starting in the field of speech language pathology, what would that advice be? I think that I would have found a way to improve my ability to perform self-care. I think I would have found a mentor that would have taken me under their wing and said, this is how you care for yourself. As you're caring for other people, this is how you care for yourself. Um, I would have found solutions earlier in my career to manage stress and just find a better way to take care of myself, learning how to say no, learning how to not give of myself to the point that I'm burning the candle at both ends. I think it's important to build rapport and we need to do that. At the same time, we have to keep some of our energy reserved for when we go home at night for the people that we that we live with and, and we love. It's about conserving and finding that balance. And I, really it's about balance. And I didn't have that. I think if I could have had a stress management course in college, that would have been incredibly helpful for me. And I think that telling myself that working and working and working isn't going to fill that hole inside of you, I think would be helpful. And I've just, in my journey, I've learned that I have to set limits and I have to find balance. And that's something that's just really been extremely helpful for me. Well, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for your honesty. Well, we do have a few more minutes. Is there anything else you would like to talk about? I think that I just like to add one thing that would be meaningful for me to discuss. And I want to share a story about a physician that I used to see when we lived in Oklahoma. And his name is Dr. DeLauder. And when I would go see Dr. DeLauder, I knew that I was going to have to wait. I knew that, you know, if my appointment was at three o'clock, sometimes I'd have to wait till 430 before he'd knock on the door and come into the the room. And I would be astonished sometimes at people, you know, grumbling and getting upset about it. But I never got upset about waiting. And the reason why I never got upset about waiting is because I knew when it was my turn, I was going to get 100% of his attention. And he was going to take care of me in my medical needs that I have to the best of his ability, which was excellent. And I knew that if I was waiting, he was doing the same thing to other patients and taking care of them with the same quality and the same 100% participation. And so I took away from that experience. I want to be like a Dr. DeLauder. I want people to see me when I knock on the door or when I come into the room, they think, all right, it's my time to get 100% participation and I'm going to get the excellent care that I've been waiting for. I want to be seen as having that level of quality of care and it all comes down to rapport. Excellent. Excellent. That is a lovely story and so true. Rapport and another thing that you've come back to during this hour is mindfulness and being present with that patient in that moment which is so important. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing that. So let's talk. Um, I, I know we have to go in just a minute, but we did not get a chance to talk about your YouTube channel. We talked a lot about your website. So tell us about your YouTube channel, when you started it, what you feature on it, who your subscribers are. Sure. So 
I started it last year, last summer, I started the YouTube channel at the suggestion of a coworker who said, hey, why don't you have a YouTube channel? You have a website. Why don't you do that? And I said, oh, and with me having a background in journalism and writing, I figured I would just do the print medium. And then I realized that I wanted to have conversations with people about what they're doing. You know, part of the Nice Speech Ladies mission is to validate the voice in others. And that's what I care about is I want to validate the voice in others. And that includes other folks that are doing things that are fantastic, up and coming companies that are making products and coming out with courses and coming out with tests. And I wanted to have a venue where people could talk about what they're doing and have them a chance, give them a chance to spread the word of what they're doing, even, even companies that are just starting out and give them a platform. So the subscribers are mostly speech pathologists. And I just, it's about, typically there are about 30 to 45 minute clips. Okay. And I, and I typically have a little bit of an intro into, I talk about some of the resources, you know, here's a resource that I published this week and this is how you use it. And then I go into the interview. Excellent. Well, we'll have to check that out as well. I have checked out your website thoroughly, but I have not had the opportunity to do that yet. So I will. So any other projects that you have upcoming? I know that's a lot. And you just took on a new role as a rehab director. Is that at a skilled nursing or home skilled nursing? Okay. Okay. Yes. So you probably have your hands full with all of your current projects. New job, website. Well, and when we're, I say we, my husband and I own Nice Speech Lady LLC, we're going to be branching out into telepractice. I'm going to be starting to see patients from home, some on the weekends, and just got credentialed with Medicare and Medicaid in the state of New Mexico. And we'll start doing that a little bit on the side. Wow. Good for you. (laughs) Here I was saying you probably didn't have any time for new projects and that's a huge new project. That is excellent. It'll be on a small scale. I mean, I'm talking about three or four patients and then maybe have other people come onto the team for overflow. But I, it's definitely something that I've wanted to do. I want to get that experience. Excellent. Well, good for you. Thank you so much for joining us today and giving us your perspective on building rapport and sharing your perspective and your experience with us. And we really do appreciate your honesty. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA's CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.